0: John 1, verse 14, what we've been learning and trekking through these these past three weeks is this concept of the tabernacle and this concept of God abiding with his people and God choosing to abide not only with his people, but choosing to abide with sinful people like you and me, people that will eventually reject him, people that will eventually in the New Testament crucify him. This is what John is speaking on when he says God has chosen to abide with us in his flesh. Now this is important for us as we've trekked through these, through these uh, understanding of the Old Testament uh, figures and, and precursors that, that have demonstrated what this implies to us. This abiding with us is conceived and most importantly seen in the tabernacle figure. That's why we've been using the book of Exodus to kind of bring this to light and give us a solid understanding on why Christ is so important for us. Now, if if you think about it, why aren't we Jewish? You know, if we're going to be studying the Jewish scripture and we're going to be kind of bringing these truths from the Old Testament law to, to our present reality, why are we not Jewish then? Well, the big answer there is because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ fulfills all the great aspects of the Old Testament. And in order for us to understand the work and the life and what Jesus does in the New Testament, all of these truths from the past have to be understood correctly. Because if not, the the tabernacle just becomes an Old Testament thing for us. The tabernacle becomes that thing, all that thing that Moses built back there in the desert somewhere, and we don't really understand what it implies. But but if we look back and, and we summarize a little bit of what we've been talking about these past three weeks, we understood that Genesis gave us this perfect figure of what the presence of God meant to be and meant to look like amongst us. God was walking among the garden, with his people and establishing this community and connection with his creation that was made in the image of God. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, what happens? Sin enters the the, the area. Or chapter 2 and then chapter 3, we get this concept of the the first uh, gospel because now we are promised that sin will be crushed by the seed of the woman. And, and so we have the separation now. Adam and Eve no longer live in the Garden of Eden. They've been separated from the Garden of Eden because of this major issue, which is sin. And now humanity has to figure out a way to stand before a holy God with this stain upon their lives. And in reality, humanity was never looking to do so, God was looking to do this with his people. God was seeking to reconcile himself with his people, and in order to do so, God had to do something in order for his people to come near to him. And so we get this liberation from, from Genesis chapter 50 and on and into the book of Exodus. These people are now enslaved. And in chapter 6, God promises, after he frees his people from Egypt, he promises to be their God and to be with them and to walk with them and to liberate them in this new journey of redemption. Now they are a redeemed people living in the presence of a holy God. So last week we spoke about the, the Exodus chapter 19, the presence of God on the mountain. And God coming down and speaking with his people. And in, in order for him to do so, his people had to pay attention to some rules and regulations that had to be stipulated before they could come to meet God. One of the things that they had to do was ceremonial cleansing. They had to wash themselves before they approached the throne of God. And, and, and so we ended a bit in, in Mount Sinai. And, and now we're going into what, what it means... For the tabernacle. Now that the tabernacle is about to be built, we'll get to understand why this is now the abode, the dwelling place of the most holy God. So, in order to do so, let's go back to Exodus. Exodus chapter 25, we'll start there. And it's interesting to see the language in Exodus chapter 19 because we see this language of God coming down. And after chapter 24, we see God abiding and dwelling on the mountain. And after 24 and 25, we see God dwelling in the tabernacle. So he no longer just comes down. He no longer just speaks from above and then retires. He no longer just... Just just peeks his head into our time and into the creation aspect. But now he lives amongst his people. And I just want to remind you what he says in chapter 25, verse 8. He says, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture. So you shall make it. So here God is desiring to dwell with his people, and he asks for a tabernacle to be built. And then we go on to a long, repetitive streak between chapters 25 and 40 of everything that has to happen within the tabernacle. Every measurement, every detail completely scrutinized by God so as to give the exact way of how to be worshipped. This this becomes clear in in, in John, we we get to John chapter 4, and and we see what worship truly is. God says that they will worship me in spirit and in truth. There is a divine mandate on how God wants and yearns to be worshipped. It doesn't change in the New Testament. We don't just worship God however we feel like it. There is a divine way to do it. Because God orders it that way, and this is what, what's done in the Old Testament. And so in the Old Testament, we get this concept of God abiding within a, a place, a location in the middle of his people. And, and we're going to go into it, not too in detail, but some of the elements within this tabernacle, especially within one of its most Holy places, because it's broken up into three, the outer courts, the holy place, and then the most holy place, which is where the Ark of the Covenant is found. So go with me in the same chapter, 25, we're going to see this important uh, element come to light. Verse 17 says, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, or its width. Here is this mercy mercy seat concept that is found on top of the covenant. Now go with me to verse 22. There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are at the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in the commandment of the people of Israel. So not only do we have a concept of a mercy seat on top of the Ark, which is in the most holy place, But we have a description of what needs to be done. What happens on that mercy seat? What happens in the most holy place? Well, what happens is this. God meets with the mediator of his people. God meets in order to instruct his people. God will live there in order to speak from there to his people. In the book of Exodus, we get this concept of the tabernacle being built alongside the elements. In the book of Leviticus, you may look at the book of Leviticus and be like, oh my God, this is all these rules and all these laws are a little bit too, um, too boring, if for lack of a better term. But within Leviticus, God is always speaking from where? He's always speaking from the ark. And so this is important because the way God's living with his people is again this concept of his voice and of his word guiding his people time and time again from the mercy seat or the place of propitiation. This is God's pattern on how to dwell with his people. It becomes an oxymoron in Israel to be an Israelite and not be guided by God's Word. You can't be a child of God, you can't be an Israelite, and not be guided by God's Word. In order for you to become a true child of God from His chosen people, you must be guided by His Word. And that's no different, my friends, in our modern context. We call ourselves Christians, but what we've realized in 2019 was, we didn't even get halfway through Genesis in reading of our scripture. We, don't, we didn't even read three, four books of the Bible all of 2019. And that kind of has brought this weight on us for 2020 and said, man, last year we, I only read two books of the Bible. This year I'm going to try to read at least three and a half. It becomes saddening to, to try to think that we can exist as a people under God and not know his words. In Israel's time, this was an oxymoron. In our modern time, the Christian, it's an oxymoron to call yourself a Christian and not be guided by God's word. It just can't be. You need to be guided by God's word. You need to know God's word. I need to know God's word. But in this ark, on top of this mercy seat God is speaking and God is enthroned so i want you to visually catch this we have the ark it's a little box what's well, actually a bigger box and it's wrapped in gold made out of wood, but it's completely entrenched in gold, the purity of it, the perfection of gold. It has two very long poles because no one could touch the ark, so the way it was transported back and forth was by these two very long poles that were also um, completely filled with gold. And on top of the box is the lid. Now, the lid is what the Bible calls the mercy seat. It is the covering. So the lid goes on top of the ark but when you remove the lid inside of the ark, as we have mentioned, there was various elements in there. But one of the main elements that we find are, are the tablets of God, or the, the testimony of God, are the Ten Commandments. And, and in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews adds that, that the staff of Moses was in there and also the bread of manna was in there as well. But we have this concept of, this, of, the, of the Ten Commandments inside The ark. This is God's instruction for his people. Remember that. It was the instruction of how people were going to live before God and how people were going to live before others. And then the mercy seat covers this. So what happens? From this mercy seat where there's two cherubim facing each other, their wings are extended towards each other, in that center, God is speaking to his people. But what becomes very important of this mercy seat is that in Leviticus, in chapter 16, we have this wonderful visualization of the priest sprinkling blood of sacrifice over the mercy seat. Now, why was the priest sprinkling blood over the mercy seat? Because once a year, the priest had to come in and atone for the sins of all of Israel. Why did he have to do that? Because Israel time and time, again and again, would break the law that was in the ark. So between the ark of the covenant inside, between the law sat the mercy seat and God above it. In between that, in between the broken law and God, we have this visual of the blood of Jesus Christ, the future Lamb, the future propitiation on top of that. Now that becomes very important because the only way people in Israel's time were able to still exist was because of that blood on top of that mercy seat. That reminds us exactly of what we as a people in our 21st century context exist for or the reason why we exist. We are only here because of what's in between God and law. It's grace, which is the blood of Jesus Christ. We're gonna celebrate this in the communion service at the end of the sermon, so prepare your hearts for that. The only way you can be right with God is because Christ has shed his blood. The only way you're you're at ease with God Even though you break his commandments, even though you break his word time and time again, even though we are still sinners, remember that, my friends, we live by that mercy seat context. There is blood on that mercy seat. There is blood on that place of propitiation. This is important for the Old Testament believer as well as the New Testament believer that we need access to God only through his blood. Look, look what the New Testament has to say about this. Go to Romans very quickly. I just want you to see why this is important. The mercy seat, if you remember last week, the mercy seat is translated to mercy seat, but it's really the Hebrew word of kapur, which is propitiation. It is a place of atonement. And look at what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 25. He says, whom God put forward as a what? What is that word? As a propitiation, if you have the ESV, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. Christ is now our propitiation. Christ's blood is is now what is on that mercy seat between God and his law, his commandments. And when I reference the law in our modern context, I'm not referencing the Ten Commandments per se. I'm referencing the New Covenant uh, stipulations that Jesus Christ himself stipulates for the New Testament believer. And that law we break all the time. It goes further Go to Hebrews. Go to Hebrews chapter. Let's go to chapter 9. And this is why this tabernacle concept is so important. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, tabernacle, which is the same word that we see in Exodus, Mishkan, this perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Once again, that's where the mercy seat is. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. So it wasn't sprinkling of an animal blood. It was the sprinkling of His own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. What have you been saved from? You've been saved from sin. I've been saved from sin. Verse 13, For if if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus here is called the perfect tent, the perfect tabernacle. Remember what John chapter 1, going back to our original text, John chapter 1 verse 14, he dwelt among us, he tabernacled among us, He is the perfect tabernacle. He is the perfect dwelling place because he wasn't built by hands of man, as the writer of Hebrews says. He wasn't brought up in a mental mindset with, with human minds. And his blood that he shed, it wasn't shedding of animal blood. It was the shedding of his blood. And that blood was the one that caused our redemption. That is the blood that brought us out of our slavery to dead works and of sin. That's why we are not a religion, my friends. That's why we don't come here and, and say, do this, do that, be like this, be like that. In Christ, we are. We are in this notion of of being redeemed and being a redeemed people. One final verse in Hebrews, go go back to chapter 4 in the book of Hebrews. I just want to press this. I want you to see the importance of the tabernacle. Chapter 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace or the mercy seat, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let us then with confidence or boldly enter the throne of grace. We can do this because of the shedding of blood that's on that throne, which is Jesus Christ. You and I cannot do it on our own. You and I cannot offer up good works on our own. You and I cannot say, hey, in 2019, I went to church. Out of 52 weeks of the year, I went to church 50 weeks of the year. And those other two, I mean, come on, I'm human. I needed a vacation. It it, it isn't what we've done. It isn't how much offering we gave in 2019 or how much time that we served as a volunteer in a ministry. It isn't what we did that makes us look any better to God. As a matter of fact, if we look at our present circumstances and even in our past lives, I, I, I would be serving all the time in ministry and my heart was far from God. It doesn't matter who serves, how you serve. What matters is are you approaching the throne of God by the means of our entrance, by the means of Jesus Christ? That is what matters, my friend. That is what matters when you are in the presence of God, in the midst of his people, understanding that God is in our midst, that we are sinners, but we are here because there has been blood that is sprinkled in between that which separates us from God and that which draws us near to him, his blood. And we are all in appreciation of that wonderful work of the blood of Jesus Christ. And once again, this is in preparation for our communion service at the end of this sermon. God designs this mercy seat where he sits and speaks from in in Exodus chapter 25. It's made out of gold. It talks about his perfection. It talks about its its purity and it's designed for his people. And that design becomes fabricated by his very own people in chapter 32. Just, just go there very... Just We're not going to look too deeply in there. <clears throat> but in chapter 32, the people copy this concept of gold and the ark because they make for themselves a golden calf. Once again, remember before the people did this god had promised to be with them since chapter 6 and if you read exodus chapter 7 and on you'll see time and time again these people being being rebellious all the time and still in chapter 19 god comes down in chapter 24 and 25 god says i still want to live with you guys he's still in the middle of sinful people In chapter 23, we read that that the people of God were going to follow God's commandments and they were going to obey his word and his law. And in chapter 32, they're just like, you know what? It's taking too long for Moses up there on that mountain. And we're going to make ourselves an idol. When the the law was repeated in, in the earlier chapters, God always reminded them not to build themselves an idol. And the first thing they do when they grow desperate, they made an idol. And you're like, man, you guys just experienced on a first-hand basis what it is to be led by God, and you still doubt? And you still make yourselves an idol? So what does God do? That's why when we look at God, we, we, we tend to say, oh, well, God forgives and forgets, and God is not like us. And Well, we've got to remember God is holy all the time. Remember that. In chapter 33, God withdraws his presence. Look, look at that sad, that sad statement in chapter 3, verse, verse 2 and on. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Persites and the Hivites and the Jebusites... Um, and in verse 3 go up to the land flowing with milk and honey but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way for you are a stiff-necked People, that's an interesting concept or an interesting choice of words. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of this ornaments from Mount Horeb onward, God withdrew his presence because they were a stiff-necked people they disobeyed what happens when you disobey God what happens when you sin you're disconnected from the presence of God, and what's interesting is what we read before that in verse 2 I will still send an angel before you, who will take care of the Amorites, the Hittites, and the Parasites, and the Jebusites, and the Hivites There's, God's still going to take care of his people, But he's going to withdraw his presence from among them. And the people understood what that meant. That's why they cried. That's why they mourned. And that's why they they took off all their ornaments and they took off all their fancy clothes because they understood that God has always been with them. Now they're going to live separate from God. Now they're going to live like they lived for the 430 years in the desert before God intervened in their lives. But what happens? Moses intercedes for his people. Here we have Moses as mediator with God and his people. Moses intercedes on their behalf, and in verse 7, it says of chapter 33, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. This is interesting because this this camp or this tent was not inside the camp. What does it say? It was outside the camp. And it's not called the Mishkan, like the, the tabernacle of chapter 25. It's called the Ochel, which is a physical tent. And it's outside. It's separate from God's people. And that's where Moses goes to intervene on the people's behalf. God is no longer in the middle of his people. And at the petition of Moses in verse 14, he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. This is Moses intervening for the people of God and God responding to the prayer of the mediator and God saying, I will Go with you, and I will give my people rest. So here is God returning to live amongst his people because of what the mediator did. Now fast forward to what we read earlier, chapter 40. We're almost done with this concept of the tabernacle. But in chapter 40, look what verse 17 says. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its base and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. Finally, in chapter 40 of Exodus... After all of this explanation of what the tabernacle did, of what the tabernacle is supposed to do, of how it's supposed to look like, and what's going to occur inside of the tabernacle, after all of this explanation in chapter 40, we finally get the building of the tabernacle. It's finally done. And it's the last chapter in Exodus. It's finally done. And what happens at that moment of finality is that God's glory fills the tabernacle. That's what we read earlier in in our scripture reading. God's glory fills the tabernacle and that's what's going to guide the people of Israel from there on out. Every time God's glory and God's presence moves, Israel will move with it. Israel is guided by God's sovereign rule in that tabernacle. And that's why if you read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, God is speaking from inside of that tabernacle. The sad part is in, in, his, in the history of Israel is that there's a moment in time and we read this in Samuel where the presence of God leaves the tabernacle and then we still have empty worship going on. Because people still think that the, that the tabernacle contains the presence of God, of God and it has gone. That's later on in Samuel. We don't have time to To get there today. But this is the important aspect of the tabernacle. It's the covenant that God desires to be faithfully with his people even though they do not deserve it. And through a mediator, we get God's saving acts in Exodus. See, what God is doing in Exodus is trying to bring his people back to Eden. There is a constant return to this place of God's presence, God's abode, God's dwelling with his people. But his people just make it hard all the time because people always tend to disobey God. It's in our very nature. God's word is what's translated In this Exodus story and narrative, and the redeemed people learn how to live because God's word is instructing them on how to do so. Leviticus offers us the sacrifices that are to be performed, and every detail of worship is is completely set out for the people of God in the book of Exodus, There is a proper way of worship. And, And what I want you to get even more about the tabernacle, and so I want to finalize this today with this understanding of the tabernacle, is I want you to understand the layout. Now, I'll do a class on exactly everything that's going on in the tabernacle later on, but the layout of the tabernacle is very important. Where is this tabernacle supposed to be? In the middle of the camp. Now, in this middle, we have this erection of, 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 of these walls, of these tents. So I, I was measuring these, these, uh, these uh, pipe and drape right here, and it was roughly that exact height. So you really can't see over or you can't see what's in, on the other side because it's fairly tall. It's not 12 feet, but it's not four-foot fence where you can kind of see what's on the other side. This is what was around the the whole encampment. So the the, the tabernacle was inside these walls. No one could look in on these walls. So what does this do? This immediately, even though God is in the middle of his people, there are these boundary markers around it reminding us that God is holy and that there is a separation between God and his people. Even though God is living with his people and amongst his people, in the middle of his people, there is a separation. And the separation, what's interesting is that at the east side of the tabernacle, there's only one entrance. There isn't multiple entrances to the tabernacle. You can't come in however you want. You can't jump over. You can't just like glide in however you want. There is only one main entrance to the tabernacle and it's at the east end of the wall. And in that, it's designed, even though, if you look at Exodus, there's a specific design and how the entrance, the, the, the curtains of the entrance are, are supposed to look. And in that entrance, that's only the only entrance to the tabernacle, the very first thing you see is the altar of sacrifice. So what's going on here? is that the tabernacle and the camp in its surrounding, it comes in and the first thing you are to do when you enter into the tabernacle is offer up sacrifice. What's most important here is that blood is the first thing that is required of those entering the tabernacle. The priests do the sacrifice on behalf of the people. And then it goes on to the bronze altar or the bronze basin where they are to cleanse themselves before they enter the actual structure of the tabernacle. So you get this? There's one entrance. The first stop is blood. Second stop is washing. And then you could come in to the holy place. And in there there's there's a couple other elements before you enter into the the, the most holy place. But the concept is a reminder of how we are standing before God. This is our spiritual layout. This is Israel's spiritual layout. The tabernacle reminds Israel of how they are before God. And that's why they needed to offer up these continuous sacrifices in order to achieve entrance into the tabernacle, into the presence of God where the mercy seat was. Well, that's the tabernacle in a nutshell. In a general sense, that's what the tabernacle is doing. But for us, we go back to John chapter 1. I just want to read that with you one final time. Because believe it or not, friends, we are going to finalize this section today. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word tabernacled among us. So all of this visual imagery that we are seeing in the tabernacle gets fulfilled in Christ. I want you to see this glorious truth. Forward to Colossians chapter 1. I just want you to see this. Colossians, the book of Colossians chapter 1. Look at what Paul says. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mysterious element that God chose to reveal to Israel is that the Gentiles, which are you and me, have what... What Paul calls this great mystery is revealed that Christ is now in who? Easy, friends. In us. In me. Say it with me this morning. In me. Christ is in me the tabernacle is in me the perfect tabernacle is in me all of these stipulations all of these rules all of these separations that we find in the old testament tabernacle the writer of hebrews says we have a perfect tabernacle the the uh, paul says in colossians this perfect tabernacle now lives in us and that's why he calls it a mystery because the the people of the old testament were like how is god coming to Them, they're not the chosen people. And Paul says it's a mystery, but it's the glory of God that now abides in every single believer. You and me are now freely and boldly and with confidence can come and enter the throne of God because the presence of the tabernacle and the sprinkling of his blood is upon us. And now we have this great and wonderful Opportunity to approach the throne of God because of His grace. There are still proper ways of doing it. However, the most humbling is to understand that I can do nothing. I am a sinner in need of God's grace. And the way I come to God is by his grace alone. The only way I can come to God is by grace alone. My heart broken, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those broken, because we've understood that we have nothing without God. And my prayer for you in this 2020 is that you understand how you are without God so that the reality of what it is that is God in you can sink in at a deeper level so that you can commit yourself to glorifying him because of what he has done already for you. The son of God, the daughter of Christ, is the one who realizes what God has done and humbly comes before the throne of God. Christ has fulfilled this tabernacle stipulation and he is now dwelling among us why don't we stand this morning